Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Stephen Hansen, Associate Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by... Simon Fishburn, Editor-in-Chief. Selena Koch, Executive Editor. Happy early Thanksgiving, everyone, and uh, welcome to the BioCentury This Week podcast. On today's podcast, we will be having a review of takeaways from the BioCentury Bay Helix East-West Biopharma Summit, plus what each new CEO faces now that Biogen and CGen have each named new leaders. First, I'd like to turn to Simone. Simone, you were there with the, most of our team uh, last week at the BioCentury East-West Summit. Can you give us a bit of the highlights from the survey that was done ahead of the summit? Thanks, Stephen. Yes, I can. Um, let me just take a step back and mention a couple of things about the summit. This is the first time BioCentury had done an East-West Summit. It was in the lovely San Francisco Bay Area. It was really a very buzzing event. The sort of one-on-one tables were very full. We had some really great panels. And Selena is going to tell you about her very interesting omics panel in a minute. But yeah, you know, we, we do a scene setter, which we often do as a survey, and we did this year. And we, we were really looking about, you know, the provocative question was, does East-West matter? And so we surveyed the sort of East-West biotech community as to how they're looking at partnering, deal flow, what they think is going to happen in the next few years with financing and so on. We got some pretty interesting takes. I have to tell you, though, I tried not to make the slides too much about this, but there's a lot of trepidation out there. I mean, I, I don't want to go as far as saying a lot of doom and gloom. But people are very wary and cautious. And when you ask them about the next five years, it's not like a hmm. picture of happiness. Worried more about the next six months than they are about the next five years, maybe? They are worried about the next six months, Stephen, and the ones after that and the ones after that. So, and, <laughs> and actually, they don't know how many six months they need to be worried about. So I think, you know, the way we look at this is this is a time when they have to knuckle down and this is when resilience matters and persistence. and Remember, for the China biotech ecosystem, it's fairly new, right? So they don't have so many, they haven't really weathered quite this type of storm so, so often. Yeah, and they, they haven't even had a, a real need yet to establish a real follow-on sort of capital sort of system as well. I mean, they haven't really had to delve into that either. So there, there's a few unknowns there for sure. Good that you raised that. So what I'm going to tell you, th there were a couple of places where respondents from the West and respondents from Asia were, were quite different. And I think one of them was when we asked people, will cross-border investment get easier, stay the same or get harder? And in the West, it was like 60% of companies from the West thought that it was going to get easier to do cross-border investments in the next five years. And about 14% thought it was going to get harder. Whereas companies from Asia were seeing exactly the opposite. They think it's going to get much harder to do cross-border investments. Um, and only sort of about 14% actually thought it was going to get easier. So how, how do you look at that information, Stephen? Yeah, I was just going to ask you if, if they gave some, some of the rationale behind it, because I, I would think that maybe that has to do with maybe a perception of, of CFIUS and, and the degree to which that's going to play a role in a lot of these deals and maybe you know you feel like there's a perception maybe in in the east that that is a lot larger barrier to to get over than maybe people in the west perceive it to be yeah i think that that was one of the take-homes that maybe 
you know, the question is like, are the Western companies just not that aware of it or ignoring the signs? Or does it actually, you know, do companies in Asia, they're just sort of more aware of the news in that way and, and the impact? So certainly mm. that is an overwhelming feeling that it's going to get harder. But on the other hand, there was a sort of different kind of upside, actually, which I thought was very interesting, which is quite a lot of enthusiasm, in particular from Asia companies, on outlicensing a product from Asia to the West, where half of them think it's going to get easier, and another, like almost 30%, think it's going to get the same. And the reason that that's significant is that deal flow has usually gone from West to East, right? So you've got the innovative products in the West. They partner with a company in Asia for marketing rights, whatever. Now what you're seeing is Asia companies capturing value for their innovations, right? They're actually getting recognized. And an interesting thing that I was coming across this morning is, for example, Roche did a deal with Gemincare, which was the first one that they've done either ever or for a very long time with a China headquartered company. And that was because it was the best asset that they found, you know, and, and that that actually I will be discussing with James Sabry, who is head of partnering at Roche on the Biocentury show next week. So I think that, you know, we're starting to see some tangible examples of the ecosystem in China maturing to the point that what they have is an asset that Western companies want, not because it's from China, but because it's the best asset that they can find. Yeah, I think that's really interesting point. I was just going to say, to me, that's a real sea change in terms of showing the maturity of the sector in China, because previously, when you're saying West to East sort of deals, they're looking for partners based wholly on geography, really. Whereas in this instance, it's really about the innovation. Um, you know, they're looking for the best assets they can find. And if those best assets happen to be coming from a Chinese company, then then great. And, and so I think it just it just really highlights really how far the, the that biotech sector in China and in Asia at large has really come. Absolutely. We're I'm- going to be rounding up some of these deals here this week. So look for a data bite coming out of BioCentury, looking at deals where China companies outlicensed a rights to an innovative product to a company in the West. Thanks, Selena. That is true. And we will also be publishing most of the results of the survey Quite soon, I'm not going to say, I'm not going to tie myself down time-wise, but quite soon in Biocentury. Any other highlights you wanted to, uh, you wanted to bring up? I, I, wanted, I wanted to discuss Selena's panel, actually, yes, because that was, a, for me, a real highlight. And for a lot of people, they came to me and said, wow, what a panel. And I, I, I would tell everybody that it is available, right, Selena, in, the, in our stream. So It is, yeah. We, we published a recording of that. It's outside the paywall, so anybody can watch it. It was a really fun panel because it was such a great group of panelists. This one was less focused on East-West, really, um, and more just on the coming of age of multi-omics in drug development. So it covered kind of the state of play. I have to say the panelists were all very optimistic that the robustness and the reliability of data that can be generated, not just with genomics, but transcriptomics and other omics in the toolkit has reached a certain level of maturity where it's not easy by any means, but that it's starting to be practical and important across many different um, parts of the drug development continuum. But to make, because multi-omics is 
broad profiling, right? And your layers of broad profiling if you're using more than one kind of omics. There's a ton of parameters and it's very easy to get kind of ghost signals or spurious correlations. So the tractability of finding something real and meaningful is coming up kind of in parallel with the technology maturation in the realm of artificial intelligence and machine learning. So there's now these computational tools that are combined with the technology tools that are making this possible. Selena, can you just remind us who who you had on this panel? I think I think you had you had quite a few yeah. big name uh, folks so on the panel, right? So David Reese, who's the EVP of Research and Development at Amgen, he said because of this union of right technology and AI, we're leaving behind in some ways, or soon, soon will be, <laughs> the need to even use animal models, and we're entering the the era of human data. Is kind of the way he talked about it. John Lepore, the SVP and head of research at GlaxoSmithKline. He was on there and gave some really interesting examples of how GSK is deploying Omics, and I can talk about one of those. Um, David Goldstein, who is CEO of a a startup that's focusing on genetic diseases uh, or genomic medicines. Um, He, that's Actio Biosciences, and he was, um, not that long ago, director of Columbia University's Genomic uh, Medicines Institute. And, um, And then we had Paul Horbelt, who is an associate at Illumina Ventures. So he brought the sort of early stage investment lens to the discussion. Yeah. Can you talk about what John said around how GSK is deploying it or, or maybe even just yeah. more broadly, what, what are some of those applications where it might be most useful? Right. So it was really clear that already Amgen and GSK are using it quite broadly not just in hypothesis generation, but all the way to phase three. So you had David Reese describing an example of how they deployed multiomics profiling to help design a phase three trial for opacerin. That's their siRNA um, against LP little a. Um, and then you had John Lepore talking about on the other end of the spectrum, um, earlier stage, that you know GSK had this IL-18 antibody that it had tested years ago, many times in different ways in phase two trials, and it never showed any real efficacy. So it's just been sitting on the shelf, right? And then what they discovered is that, well, okay, there's actually these um, polymorphisms that are linked to changes in IL-18 levels that correlate with better outcomes in atopic dermatitis and inflammatory bowel disease. So that helped GSK kind of find the most promising indications for this thing that was sitting on their shelf. And then they were able to take this like several layers further using like, um, you know, human cells and skin biopsies and finding an IL-18 gene signature that could itself be a biomarker. And it could help identify within say atopic dermatitis or within inflammatory bowel disease, the right patients for this antibody. That hasn't yet proven out. It's in phase 1B, but we will maybe see the results of that. So, Selena, do you, did you sort of get the impression? I, I don't know that we could say that it's a tipping point that the field has passed, but that we're sort of approaching some real value inflection point for the use of omics, let's say, in advancing drug development. I mean, we know that there's been sort of a bunch of genetically targeted drugs, but here you're talking about use of it to actually expedite the whole paradigm. Yeah, I mean, where the whole thing eventually goes is precision medicine, right? So there was a whole lot of talk about 
and this came a lot from David Goldstein, who who does this, I think, in his own company, finding genes that are not just like tiny risk factors, but really powerful risk factors or causative, like he's pretty into Mendelian genes that cause very rare diseases. And then in that population where you have a very strong genetic effect, you can phenotype the heck out of it, is the way he puts it. Um, and you can really understand the whole mechanism from gene to disease, how to treat, what the biomarkers are. And what's really killer about it is that those same mutations, they show up within subpopulations of common diseases. So what you've done by studying the heck out of this very rare disease that might be too small for a lot of companies to want to explore is you've turned the human, the actual patient into the model for the common disease. And then John Lepore was like, oh, you know, this is exactly, you know, how we would want to get into something like an Alzheimer's, right? Because it's very risky. want to find that niche population, find the like strong biological rationale, and then maybe build out from there, just increase your chances of success. So there was, know, there was a lot of optimism, I felt like, on the panel. Yeah, it was really interesting. And, and I will actually confirm, he really did say you should phenotype the heck out of this. So. <laughs> he did, yeah, he did. Interesting. Well, yeah, well, thank you very much. And all of the content for the BioCentury Bay Helix East-West Biopharma Summit is available on the website for 30 days for those of you who have registered for the event. Um, I think I'd like to transition now to, uh, to our third topic for the pod. We recently had, uh, not last week, but the week before, we had the announcement that both Biogen and Seagen have named their new CEOs. Chris Vierbacher is now going to be leading Biogen while David Epstein is taking over at uh, Seagen. First, maybe Simone, you want to uh, give any thoughts on these changes here? Yeah, I do want to just make a couple of comments. Stephen, I think in a minute we'll get you to dig into the personalities and their histories. But I think we need to note that at a structural level, and it's not just these two appointments, it's the last however many, it's still a male, 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 male world. So what they did, you have two companies with open CEO positions, one of which in particular has made a big point about diversity, and they very much went with the old guard. And the old guard is, you know, male and white. Um, so I, I feel like we've seen this over and over again. We did have a couple of very prominent women appointments, uh, Fiona Marshall to the head of NIBA, which is Novartis's research arm most recently. And of course, there are a, a couple, but it's really two or three women heading major pharmaceutical companies or big biotechs. So yeah, this is a uh, companies, and you'll talk a little bit about this, I think we can call them beleaguered, a little bit beleaguered, is that, are we going to battle? I think embattled would be the embattled, word. Embattled yeah. companies, hmm. and they're embattled companies, but they chose, neither of them chose to go with the next generation, actually, whichever gender or whatever, but they didn't go with next generation leaders. They didn't go with people who could mark their path to the future. They went with people who have a strong track record and, you know, that's obviously what their boards wanted. So why don't you tell us a little bit about each of those, the Sanofi um, angle, Biogen Sanofi angle, Biogen. and, yep, and sure. uh, David Epstein and um, sure. CJ. Yeah, so, so I mean, Biogen, we've been spent, I mean, honestly, this past year, well, a lot of people have always been spending a lot of time, but so if we looking at kind of where they're sort of positioned, obviously with the um, 
the recent hit for them with Lacanamab in phase three, I, I think Bajin was in a really interesting position. Essentially, you know, they have a declining revenue stream, as we've written. They don't have a lot of what look to be real near-term growth drivers in the late stage pipeline. And so, you know, it was sort of a position where Biogen looked as if they were setting themselves up to have, and again, this is assuming Lacanamab gets approved, gets through the CMS reimbursement sort of decision, and actually gets in the market and people are actually willing to use it. Um, assuming all that goes well, they look like they were in a position where they would have, you know, maybe one growth driver and then a bunch of stuff that would be declining. And that's that's a I think a fairly difficult position for a 40, 50 billion dollar company to to find themselves in. And so given Chris Vierbacher's track record, as you said, Simone, so when he came into Sanofi in 2008, they were also sort of they had had a run of three, four years with basically zero or or a slight decline in sales. And he was the one who, you know, came in and did the did the Genzyme deal. He basically got them through a couple big uh, patent cliffs for the company. He helped navigate them through and sort of build the Regeneron deal that had been completed just before he joined. Um, and, you know, that has now turned into Depixent, which is the largest drug now. So, you know, say what you will about maybe some of the other things he did. I mean, I think he was brought I in. Think, he, I think you're, it's you're right. He did do some deals. And I think most people would look on the Genzyme deal. And, you know, I mean, I think that's, as you say, it's, it's proved itself. I think we should remember it was a hostile takeover. It was, and, yep. and Genzyme was kind of, you know, I feel like in Boston at the time, what I hear is that they ruffled a lot of feathers, that deal kind of thing. So he's going back in there to Boston. I wonder if people have long memories or if they uh, mm. look now at that as a, as a positive <laughs> yeah. thing. Yeah. So, it, you know, I, I think to me, it raises the question of whether given his history, if that if that's the mandate that the Biogen board is then is then giving him, is that he's coming in to, to kind of reshuffle things a bit, maybe, re, you know, does he reprioritize? Does he move beyond neurology? I mean, I think these are all sort of open questions that, um, I'm, you know, I'm sure we'll get an answer to in not too long. But I, th I think it'll be interesting to see what road he goes, because I, I just find it hard to believe that they would bring in someone like him for them to largely stand pat, I think. So I think that'll be really interesting to see how Biogen perceives. And then CGen. Well, you have to you have to imagine that Vibaka is, you know, has decided with the board or has has agreed with the board on the path. I mean, it's not going to work I'm if sure. he wants to start That's... going outside neurology and the board's not okay with that. So yep. I, I'm I'm sure these were all topics that were done in the diligence process. I would imagine um, that they've got to be on the same page for that. And then just just to bring up Seijin as well, I mean, I think they're they're embattled for different reasons. I mean, obviously, it's been a rough year for them with everything that's gone on sort of outside of the company for, you know, co-founder and former longtime CEO, Clay Siegel. And so getting out from that, going through the M&A rumors that went on all summer, and then that sort of fizzling out. In a lot of intensive purposes, I think Seijin's in a really good spot. They've got three new drugs that have been approved in the last three years. They've got a pipeline full of first-in-class assets. You can debate how you know where their ADC technology fits relative to others think, in terms yeah, of. Yeah, I mean, I think people have been quite critical safety. of that. So yeah. they're doing well in a product line, but I think a lot of people feel that they haven't kept up with the next-gen ADCs. Would Would you say that that's a fair assessment? I think we're still probably quite early in that debate. You know, I think that there's obviously the one clear and her to right, is kind of always kind of given as the prime example of how maybe another technology has outpaced some of the competitors. But 
I think we probably still need to wait for a couple more to come to really make a call on that. But in, in any sense, I guess my point just being that, you know, I think Seijin overall is still in a pretty good place. It's just the challenge they've had is if you look at these three programs that they've had approved in the last um, three years, like PADSEV, Takusa, and TIVDAC, all three are showing some growth, but they're not sort of showing the growth that you might expect at such an early launch stage, right? I mean, they're they're showing 10%, you know, 11% sort of growth rather than the 40, 50, 60, 70 that you would expect to see, you know, when you're two, three, four quarters in, into a launch, if, if the launch was going really well. And so given David's sort of history, you know, being at, he basically was the one who launched Novartis's oncology units way back in like 2001. So he was behind the launches for Gleevec. He was one of the main voices who pushed Novartis to do the deal with UPenn to bring in CAR-T and sort of recognizing the opportunity that that presented from a, you know, for patients. Um, and then he led the pharma, you know, then he took over at Novartis Pharmaceuticals where, you know, they did show some some growth there as well. So I, I think he brings some of that sort of that oncology and that sort of commercial chop to CGEN that, you know, hopefully helped them to boost some of the sales for these these recent launches. Well, you know, those are both really big names um, with a lot of experience. I think that those are two dominant companies and people, we, we and everybody else are going to continue to watch them. Yep, that's right. That's right. Excellent. Well, good. Well, I think that's all the time we have for today and uh, in today's podcast. So thank you all very much for joining us. And just a little um, reminder that BioCentury will not be publishing on Thursday and Friday in observation of the U.S. Thanksgiving holiday. All of BioCentury's podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for our podcasts. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education. 